The theme of this week has been generation to generation. I thought I'd show you a, a photo of my, uh, my family, of my kids, of my next generation. I should come up. There's me and my wife, Grace, and our four daughters. Uh, it's actually my second daughter's prom, which is why she's looking so gorgeous, whereas I just come out from the gym, which is why I'm looking sweaty and disheveled, <laughs> but rehydrating with a glass of something red in honor of Rigby. These are my kids. Uh, they're millennials. They're iGen. They're aged 14 to 21. They're my next generation. We care about the next generation, and this week we've been focusing on some charges to us and to all the generations. We've been charged to love the church. We've been charged to preach the whole gospel. We've been charged to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We've been charged to father the next generation, and we've been charged to fight for genuine relationship. And this evening I get to finish off by charging us to fight the good fight. Are you ready to fight tonight? Let's read scripture. 1 Timothy 1.18 says this. I'm going to read it both in the NIV version and then from the ESV to help us get the flavor of what Paul is saying to Timothy. First from the NIV. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regards to the faith. And then from the ESV, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, Tragic. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. In my town, you need to be careful who you pick a fight with. And that's because my town is home to a major component of United Kingdom Special Forces. These are guys who have gone through the most intense training. They're the most highly trained, the most highly selective selected the most highly disciplined, the most highly experienced soldiers in the British military, but a lot of the time you wouldn't know who they are as they pass you in the street. And so you want to be careful who you pick a fight with in my town, because there is unsuspected fighting potential on the street of my town. Now, we might not all look like fighters, but there needs to be unsuspected fighting potential amongst us, because we are called to fight. We might not look like fighters, and we don't fight with the weapons of this world, but we are called to a fight. We have to be able to fight. First thing about this fight is the context of the fight, and the context is relationship. It's fathering. It's partnership. Paul writes, Timothy, my son, or Timothy, my child. And Timothy and Paul had an especially close, an especially fruitful, and especially faithful relationship. This is what Paul says to the Philippians about Timothy. I have no one else like him who shows genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. 
Paul had nobody like him. Now, Paul was a tent maker, as we know, and a, a tent maker, that would have been a father-to-son business. Father would have trained son, son would have worked with father. That son would have become a father and per- passed the trade on to his son. And Timothy is completely invested with Paul, not now in the work of making tents, but in the work of the gospel. And you know, we can't fight the good fight on our own. We cannot sidestep genuine relationships. We can only sidestep genuine relationships at our peril. Donnie spoke so compellingly, so beautifully about this this afternoon. And there was something that was unique about the relationship that Paul and Timothy had together. Their closeness, their history, but we need that kind of relational closeness. We need genuine relationship if we are to fight the fight. It's relational closeness that allows the big asks to be made. In our business, you don't leverage people through the offer of job promotion or increased pay. That's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Church leaders don't have that kind, or they shouldn't have that kind of authority over the people that they're working and serving with. No, the way that we influence one another is through relationship. And Paul here is asking Timothy to stay in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a tough assignment, but Paul has complete trust in Timothy, as Timothy has complete trust in Paul. We need people that we can trust, people that we're in genuine relationship with. And the way that we get to have people that we can trust is by being trustworthy people ourselves. Timothy had proved to Paul that he was trustworthy. Paul trusted Timothy entirely. Timothy trusted Paul. Be trustworthy. Now, as we grow as a movement, this becomes more challenging. As we grow, as we increase in number, as we stretch around the world, it can feel as if relationships themselves can get stretched. It's been great to be together here these three days, but we're going to go to different corners of the globe. It's two years until we have another event like this. In two years' time, when we join together again, there will be a whole load, I trust, more people in the room who we don't yet know, but who, by the grace of God, will find a place with us and will be commissioned to serve amongst us. There'll be more people to get to know, and those that we do know might be far away. There can be stresses and tensions in that. We've got to fight for relationship. We've got to work at it. It doesn't just happen. We need to labor, fight for relationship as we grow, and we need to invest relationally in the next generation. Just as Paul did with Timothy, we've got to look for the next generation, invest relationally. Build friendships, build partnerships, build trust. I'd like to reconvene soon. Ryan and Kate, would you stand? An example of this. We had some examples this afternoon, but here's another example. Rigby and Ryan together lead Common Ground Church here in Cape Town, the largest of our advanced churches, 10 congregations, 4,000 or so people. And uh, Rigby and Ryan are partnering in leading that church. And there is no hint of competition or envy or mistrust in this relationship. There's complete security, there's complete honor, there's love, there's a beautiful partnership in this relationship. And we're suing with Kate, and uh, when I see them together and I'm influenced by one, I know I'm being influenced by all. 
There's something here which is a beautiful synergy, a beautiful partnership. They've fought the fight for relationship. That's the context. They've done it, and it's bearing fruit, and it's a beautiful thing. Coming on to these guys. And I want us all to stand. I want to keep us moving tonight. I want us to be physically involved. Let's all stand up because I want to charge us to fight. And I want you to respond. So I charge you to fight for relationship. Will you fight for relationship? Amen. You can take your seats. The second thing is that the call empowers us to fight. The call empowers us to fight. Words have been spoken over Timothy which shaped everything about him. And in summoning Timothy to fight, Paul is digging deep into Timothy's own personal sense of call and conviction. Timothy's in Ephesus. It's a tough assignment. But Paul isn't asking him to do anything in Ephesus which is out of sync with God's call on Timothy which has already been made. Being in Ephesus is costly, but Timothy knew the call was costly. Check this out, how we are introduced to Paul and Timothy. Acts 16, it says this. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area they knew that his father was a Greek. Timothy knew what it was to pay a cost for his call. He knew that his calling was costly. A grown man being circumcised. No easy thing. Now, Timothy is often parodied as being timid. Timid Tim. But there was clearly some steel in Timothy. When Paul said, I'm going to take you on my travels, but it means you're going to have to get circumcised. There's some steel there, in every sense of the word. <laughs> but it's the call of God. It's the call of God which steals Timothy. And by bringing his calling to mind, he's empowered to fight. He's received a calling, he's received a gift. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 and then 2 Timothy 1. He says, Timothy, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you, probably at Lystra, at the moment when Paul called him and he was circumcised. And then 2 Timothy 1.6, fan into the flame the gift of God, which is on you through the laying of my hands. Probably at the same time, Paul laid hands on Timothy called him, circumcised him. Timothy responded to the call. Timothy had been called, he was gifted, and Paul reminds him of that, and that steals Timothy for the fight. Now, do we know our calling? What are the things that God has spoken over your life? What are the things which you can call to mind to put steel in your soul when you need to fight? I know there are things that God has spoken over me. I remember once, long ago, when I was 21, I think, in a meeting full of 20-year-olds, and Terry Virgo suddenly grabbed hold of me, laid hands on me, and prophesied that I'd be like Joseph, that while I was in obscurity, God would raise me up. And that's something which I've called to mind in those moments when I've felt like I've been dragged down. 
What words have been spoken over you? What is your calling? Now, how do you receive a call from God? Part of that is by allowing others to speak into your life. Timothy allowed Paul to speak into his life. We need to allow others to speak into our lives and then enact what we receive. Generation to generation, what are we speaking into the next generation? What are we speaking over them? What are we calling them to? It's the call that enables big asks to be made. Paul gives Timothy a charge. Fight in accordance with the prophecies that were made over you. Fight this charge I give you. It's a charge and a call for the truth. The charge is this, 1 Timothy 1.3. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, the reason you're there in Ephesus, the charge I'm giving you, the command I'm giving you is to refute the false teachers. You've got to fight for the truth. We need to teach the next generation to fight for the truth. We need to call them to the truth. We've got to call them to the truth. We've got to call them to the whole gospel, and we've got to help them see their calling in Christ Jesus. Imbenisi and Tash, would you stand up? I've known Imbenisi and Tash. I met them first in Bulawayo in 2004 when they just started a church there, and Bones was pursuing his early medical career. And I've watched... Ready to slap me? I have watched these guys pursue their call. And at times it's been brutally hard. And at times it's been utterly confusing. What is the Lord doing? But Bones has pursued medicine and the cost of that. And they have pursued church planting and church leadership. And they have been resolute in following the call of God upon their lives. They're a model for us of following the call. Let's honor Vanessa and Tash. And so would you all stand because I want to charge you and I want you to respond. I charge you. Will you fight for your calling? Will you fight for the truth? Amen. The third thing is the fight itself. The Christian life is not like a battle. It is a battle. And we need to have a wartime mentality. We are not civilians engaged in occasional unexpected scuffles. We are enlisted troops expecting action. The special forces soldiers in my town, they might not stand out particularly. And they do ordinary things. The ones I know, they take their kids to school. And they mow their lawns in their gardens. And they go for a drink with their friends. And they go to the shops with their wives. But they are always ready at a moment's notice. They're always operational. They're always ready to go. And very often they are going. We need to have that kind of mentality. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian church. You know the scripture. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your grounds, and after you have done everything, to stand. You know, it's guaranteed the evil day will come. You've experienced evil days already. And you will again. I have. And I will. It's guaranteed. Why? Because we have an enemy. This is what the Apostle Peter says. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This means we need to be ever ready. We need to be ever vigilant. It means we need to teach the next generation how to fight. Because the Christian faith isn't a lifestyle choice. It's a call to arms. And so we need to teach the next generation to fight for the right things. Every generation fights for things. Sometimes those things are good. Sometimes they're bad. We need to teach the next generation of believers to fight for the right things. We need to teach them to contend for the truth. We need to teach them the whole gospel and teach them how to fight for the gospel. With my brothers and sisters from Nepal and India, please stand. Where are you guys? Some of you over there, Jim C. I had the privilege of being out with Alan and some of the other guys in Nepal last year with these brothers and sisters and hearing their stories. We've already celebrated them, but we need to celebrate them again. These are men and women who know how to fight. They're not fighting against flesh and blood. They're fighting against the principalities and the powers. They're fighting against the hardship of life. They're fighting against the reality of life being difficult in Nepal. Fighting against the reality of having to make epic journeys. Nobody else would have put as much effort to get here as these people have. They're fighting. Let's honor our friends from Nepal and India again. While we're all standing, I charge you, I charge you to stand up again. I charge you to fight for your life because we have an enemy like a roaring lion. Will you fight for your life and teach the next generation to fight for theirs for the sake of the gospel in Jesus Christ? Amen. The fourth thing is the fight for faith. When we talk about faith, it can feel like we're talking about a kind of like the smoke that was in here earlier as Ryan emerged at the beginning through the mist. It can feel like a gas or an atmosphere, something you kind of got to work your way into. But the biblical picture of faith is rather different. It's, it's something much more solid. It's something which you hold on to. It's like a gymnast or a weightlifter who chalks up their hands and grips the bath for everything that they have and won't let go. That's what faith is like. You grip onto something solid because that solid thing is what is going to keep you safe. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 6. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
pressures and disappointments and temptations mean that we can start to loosen our grip on the shield of faith. We can start to let go. Fighting for faith can feel like hard work. You know why? Because it is a fight. And fighting is hard work. And at times it can feel much easier to let go. You know what happens if you let go? Suddenly you're exposed to all the flaming darts of the evil one. You've had to fight already for faith. I've had to fight for faith. I think the things I've fought and things which are coming up have got to fight. I think building projects we have gone through in my history leading churches, fighting again for finance, when again there's some huge project and you've got to raise all this money and you think, oh God, how on earth can we on earth? What on earth? And you have to fight for faith. Yes. My own life, probably the most difficult thing Grace and I have gone through now. 25 years of being married is that two of our beautiful daughters have ex experienced eating disorders and the fight for faith that they get through it and be healthy and well. The fight for faith when it feels like your ministry isn't being fruitful, when it feels like not many people are responding to the gospel. Fighting for faith that Jesus is king, that he does want to reach all nations, that he will get his inheritance, that no one who he wants is going to escape, but he's going to gather them all. Fighting for faith. Who's a model for us of faith? How about these guys? Next picture. Four years ago, we had our first uh, global... Ah, <coughs> oh, so tired and emotional. Four years ago, we had our first global advance gathering here in the Cape. And just before that started, some of us were with PJ Nash, and they were telling us, we feel the Lord is leading us to go to Washington, D.C. And as a team and as friends together, we talked about that and prayed about that, and we said, yeah, we're behind you. Go for it. And lots of you know the story, not all of you will, but those four years, they've been brutal. The things which PJ Nash have experienced in their family, the things which they've experienced in administration, trying to get, be able to stay in the state, stuff they've experienced in the church context they went through, the opposition, the difficulties, the hostility they have gone through have been extraordinary. It has been brutal. It has been grueling. It has been crushing. And yet PJ and Ash have fought the fight for faith. They haven't let go. At times, maybe their fingers one or two fingers might have come off the bar and they've needed friends around them to hold their hands tight, but they've never let go of faith. They've never let go of the shield of faith. They've fought the fight for faith. They are a model for us of how to fight for faith. They're not here, but let's honor them. And would you stand? I want to charge you again to fight this fight. I charge you to fight the fight of faith, to fight for your life. Will you fight for faith? Yeah. Amen. Take your seats. The final thing is the fight for conscience. Now, why this? Fight the good fight, holding on to faith, 
in good conscience, says Paul. If you read, or as you read through the New Testament, you'll find that conscience is a key theme for the Apostle Paul. It's something which he turns to again and again. Let me give you some examples and show us what conscience does and why it's so important in our fight. Firstly, a good conscience is about personal integrity. It answers this question. Is there anything coming in the way of my relationship with God? This is what Paul says when he's on trial before the governor Felix. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. For Paul, it was important that he had personal integrity. Is anything keeping me from full communion with my father? And is anything that I'm doing wronging another person? Paul didn't want to be in that position, and neither should we. Conscience is about personal integrity. The next thing we see is that a good conscience is a way of demonstrating honor to Christ to God. The question this asks is, do my actions demonstrate my obedience to Christ? 1 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Do my actions prove that I am more concerned about the opinion of God than I am about the opinion of man? That's what conscience does. It's a way of, act, of demonstrating obedience to Christ. Another thing that conscience does is that the fight for conscience is a guide for ethical living. The question this asks is, do my actions help others live in God's grace? Paul writes to the Corinthian church, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Am I using my freedom in a way that helps rather than hinders other people? Do my actions help other people to live in the reality of God's grace? Another thing about this fight for conscience is that it is a fight which enables us to have a ministry plumb line. The question this asks is, am I acting with integrity towards the people who I serve? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, this is our boast our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. Can I say, can I say, can you say, hand on heart, that I'm acting with that kind of integrity towards the people whom God has given me to serve? People of my church, I'm called to pastor, other churches I'm involved in helping, Am I, is my conscience testifying that I have conducted myself with integrity and godly sincerity? It needs to. And then a good conscience is also a qualification for leaders. The question this asks is, are the leaders in your church, are they people of good conscience? That's what Paul says about deacons. They, deacons, must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. The reality is you can't be a leader, you can't be a servant 
which is what leaders are called to be. You can't be a leader of others if you haven't got a clear conscience. Well, you can, but it's going to end up in shipwreck. You can't fight the battle well without good conscience. Compromised conscience means, means diminished fighting potential, and it can lead to shipwreck. This is what Paul says in his charge to Timothy. Hold on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, the tragedy is that our conscience can become hardened. There can be kind of silos in our minds where we allow one area of our thinking, one area of our actions to become hardened. We can actually act in good conscience in various areas, but we have one area where we begin to harden and shrink and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to work in that area of our conscience. And that area of conscience can become hard. And that's what happened to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And there are others we can name. Paul names Hymenaeus and Alexander for all history. They're recorded in the Bible as having shipwrecked their faith. What a desperate legacy. But you, I, we can name people who have shipwrecked their faith because they became hardened in their conscience. There's that thing, that behavior, that financial habit or that drinking habit or that sexual habit or that arrogant habit or whatever it might be where they just got hardened and in the end their faith was shipwrecked. It's all too easy to block off part of our conscience. Think of all the ministry failures, tragically, that we can list. What happened to conscience? What, how, how could they do it? I, every time I hear about somebody I know, especially somebody I know personally who's fallen in sin, and you have that moment, you think, how did that happen? It's a question of conscience. They became hardened in their conscience. The tragedy is it isn't hard to be hardened. We need to say Soft. Who's a model for us in good conscience? This, was, this is a hard one, and I've chosen, might seem a strange one, I've chosen my daughter Nancy as an example of good conscience. This is Nancy, this was two weeks ago when she turned 18. She is an amazing girl, super smart, beautiful, godly. But she, to me, is a model of good conscience because she is tender, soft-hearted, she hates anything unkind spoken about other people. Often we watch the 10 p.m. news together, and my, I tend to enjoy commentating on the news, and I'll start shouting and making comments about people on TV, especially politicians, and she'll say, Dad, how can you say that? She kind of calls my conscience up because she's so pure of conscience. There's a softness about her which is... Beautiful. She's the next generation. We need to teach the next generation to have good conscience. And I don't want my Nancy to get hardened. The world's a hard place, but I don't want her to get hard and cynical. I want her to keep her beautiful, soft conscience and not shipwreck her faith. And so will you stand again as I charge you in this? I charge you. Fight for good conscience. Will you fight to keep your conscience soft?
stay standing. We need to fight the good fight. The context of our fight is relationship. It's partnership. Without friendship, without partnership, without genuine relationship, we're done for. We're called to fight. We are called to it. We have a calling on us, and we're called to fight for the truth. We need to be constantly vigilant for the fight because the Christian life is a battle. We're called not to be part-time soldiers. We're called as enlisted troops. We need to fight for the faith and not let go, and we must fight for and with good conscience. And so I charge you, will you fight Fight the good fight. Will you fight it every day that God gives you breath? Amen.